Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on tech policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I head development at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. This podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. And today, we're going to talk about semiconductors, why they're important, what's the impact of the current scarcity, and why it's critical to keep them secure and plentiful. Our guest is John Zeisman. He's Professor Emeritus at UC Berkeley and co-founder slash co-director of the Berkeley Roundtable on the International Economy. His ongoing work covers the implications of platforms and intelligent tools for work, entrepreneurship, and international competition. He's published three books and has written extensively on European and Japanese policy and corporate strategy, and most recently, a lot of work on semiconductors and their security. So we're happy to have you here. Pleasure. Hate to mention this, John, because it dates us, but when I was getting my PhD way back in the days, you were and your colleagues at Bree, Berkeley Roundtable International Economics, were a key source of my inspiration at the time to focus on this whole question. So thank you. Well, that's very generous of you. And I might remark, given that we're talking about semiconductors, that the people who helped us found Bree, the Berkeley Roundtable on the International Economy, were. Uh, the first check was written by David Packard, and the first meetings were hosted with Bob Noyce, who founded Intel, for those in your audience, uh, Jerry Sanders, who founded AMD, and Charlie Spork, who founded a national in which the issue at the day was uh, the Jap- character of Japanese competition, the role of the Japanese state, and of closed markets in promoting competition there. They've come a long way from the days when they believed uh, not incorrectly completely, that they were creating a new utopia. Absolutely. We hear a lot about how semiconductors are an essential product. And I'd like if we could start by you explaining to us and our audience some uses of semiconductors, maybe to help illustrate how critical they are. (laughs) I I will say that the, the easy answer is, what are they not embedded in at this point? Uh, I bought a new car last summer, and it was delayed three months because they couldn't get the chips. Uh, It'd be interesting to find a product that you're buying that, at this point, uh, that doesn't depend in one way or another on the uh, processing power of uh, either a simple uh, or powerful chip or uh, the uh, sensor capacities of of that tool or uh, the information uh, embedded in that tool. It's come a long way in those years since Noyce and Sanders helped us. In those days, uh, folks really did wonder what was the importance of the semiconductor. So the answer is it's the foundation of the digital era. Yeah, you know, back then, John, a lot of those semiconductors, well, initially they went to the military when Fairchild was making them. And then then they largely went into computers. Uh, You and I both remember the the term Wintelism, (laughs) Windows and Intel. And they were obviously in other things, but beyond we're, we're so far beyond when they're in uh, when they're just in computers now. And the other thing that's changed over the years is, frankly, that we used to lead. I mean, the U.S. invented semiconductors out of Bell, Bell, well, Bell Labs, and then and then Fairchild and Intel and, and a whole set of other companies that were just you know incredible. We, we were so far ahead of the world, and and now we make just about 11% of the semiconductors in the world. And 
A lot of other countries make more, Taiwan, South Korea. What happened? Well, I think that part of the question is, is, does it matter if you dominate design and you dominate the equipment and materials if you are the company that does the final assembly? And for the audience, then I think we should separate the fact that a company like Qualcomm designs chips, a company like uh, Applied Materials design, uh, builds the equipment uh, uh, ACML in, in the Netherlands uh, builds the lithography that draws the lines on the chips. But in fact, you're absolutely right. The final assembly, the, the if you will, the production of those chips uh, is been heavily come to be dominated by Samsung and uh, above all TSMC uh, in Taiwan. So the question becomes, what difference does that make. And part of the question, I think, is, and I think the position that my colleague, Laura Tyson, who many of you probably, your audience probably knows, uh, ran the National Economic Council when Bill Clinton was in office when we were all young. Um, in, in fact, we would argue that we need to have a competitive, resilient, secure, and sustainable semiconductor industry, one that, in fact, throughout the uh, supply chain is competitive, and that secure uh, part of that really does mean it needs to be regionally distributed. So there are many problems with this being so concentrated, both in a handful of firms, particularly uh, those uh, located in one region of the world. I mean, a significant earthquake, let alone any geopolitics, and I think we've learned some lessons out of the Ukraine, that geopolitics still remain, could deeply disrupt uh, matters. But you asked a specific question is, why don't we produce the chips here? And I, would you like me to address that? Please do. We used to produce, uh, as my colleague Stephen Azell has shown, about 40% or so, and now it's down to about 11%. Well, I think there, there are obviously several reasons. I mean, one of which is that TSMC made a basic bet with money from the Taiwanese government that, in fact, you could build foundries. Uh, and let others design the chips. And we, at various points, didn't worry too much about that. A second part of that is, as we all know, Intel made a variety of gambles on what to do with the income it had, uh, and it didn't reinvest in the same way one might have expected it to uh, in the production uh, capacities. So it fell from a leadership position to somewhat behind it. And of course, there are the issues that it is expensive and to some extent slow to design and build new foundries in the United States. But we sh really should be clear that for much of the supply chain, the U.S. is well positioned. It's in the foundries of the most advanced chips where the challenges uh, are real. And uh, you and I would uh, share a view of that. Yeah, you mentioned TSMC and Intel maybe not investing as much. I was on a panel once with Clay Christensen, who unfortunately recently passed away. And Clay was talking about how Amer too many American companies are thinking about stock market. And and, and, it, and uh, he said that they're focused on return on net assets. So the, the, the analysts look at what are what's called RONA. And uh, he said the way you can you can boost your RONA by reducing your assets so your return on net assets goes up if you have fewer assets, which he said a lot of American companies do, or you can just try to get higher returns. And he said he was talking to Morris Chang, who, as we know, is the founder at the time was the CEO of, uh, of TSMC. And he said, we measure profits at TSMC in tons, not ratios. 
And in other words, they'll spend $100 million on a machine if they can make a lot of money off of it. They're not worried about sort of short-term market issues. How much do you think that matters? Well, let's put a real label on it. It's the financialization of the economy and a dismissal of the importance of manufacturing in general. As you know, Rob, back in the, the day of the early dinosaurs, I and a colleague, Steve Cohen, wrote a book called Manufacturing Matters. Uh, so, in fact, I do agree with that. And it is the f focus on financial measures rather than longer-term competitive position that, in fact, led to some of these troubles and an assumption that you could outsource everything and that it would always be easily available to you. Uh, I mean, there are two parts to that. One is, do you lose the leverage uh, that came from being able to control the matters uh, such as uh, where you're going to produce your own product? And secondly, do you cease to learn enough about the next generation of product from what you would learn if you were making those products? But we dismissed all of that and moved to sort of a notion of outsourcing as an easy solution to many things, when in fact, it oftentimes was a trap. You know, I, I, I wish, John, that you would come to Washington and debate some of these folks, because I think uh, even though they might say they're economists, I, I, I sometimes wonder whether, and certainly I doubt they read your book, but my favorite is Adam Posen, who's uh, head of the uh, Peterson Institute, who had a piece in Foreign Affairs recently where he basically said that uh, any, anybody who's focused on manufacturing, it's a fetish that probably reflects an underlying racism and sexism, uh, believe it or not, because it's just about helping white working class men. Clearly didn't know anything about the demographics of manufacturing and clearly doesn't understand the real economy. How do we overcome that, that myopic, myopia to be kind? Well, to, to, I, I can only r recall uh, having actually had a dinner party with the infamous Milton Friedman and having a debate over whether semiconductor chips mattered more than potato chips. Quite literally, it's an old line, but he was using it at the time. Uh, I think the issue, and Adam is a very smart guy, uh, and about finance knows a huge amount, but I, I think part of the issue is that folks lose track of the fact that for the most part, manufacturing is now highly automated. And the next, this generation of manufacturing innovation is not about jobs. Uh, it, it is really about changes in uh, the kind of robotics that are going to be used, the flexibility of the robotics that are going to be used. Um, and it's precisely because it is so highly automated at this point, and so highly dependent on semiconductor controlled chips, uh, that if you have semiconductor controlled processes, uh, that it matters a great deal. And I think we need to understand that and uh, uh, and move forward. What are some things that the U.S. government should be doing to facilitate a more stable supply of semiconductors? Well, I want to separate two things, if we will. What we need to do with the supply problems now and the longer-term issues. I mean, the supply problems now, in some sense, not much can be done real quickly in the next six months because any kind of foundries or building are going to take several years to actually get put into place. So I think that uh, we need to obviously make investment attractive, but equally important, we should in fact recognize that if, a, if Intel builds a foundry in Europe or Samsung or TSMC builds a foundry in the United States, 
both of those contribute to the regional diversity of where the production takes place. I mean, we don't want to be in a position that a single earthquake uh, somewhere or an invasion somewhere actually disrupts those global supply chains. So uh, the other part is, is obviously there is a huge discussion, and we've supported that in discussions both with the Secretary of Commerce and with the staff to support American investment in fab production and other things in the United States. But the trick will be, and let me, rather than uh, be specific, say that the real trick uh, will need to be, uh, how do we make sure the money goes into fabrication facilities or semiconductor production and not to the bottom line of the companies, not a recreation of the financialization that caused problems in the first place. So yes, we need to support the companies building here in a variety of ways, but we have to make sure that competing for location does not absorb the money. That is, we subsidize, uh, we offer a billion dollars in whatever to a company and uh, the French offer two billion. So in fact, they build it in France, but in fact, because the company in many cases had the cash in the first place, that goes to the bottom line. So the trick will be how to encourage production financially in the United States uh, without simply having it benefit shareholders. The second is, can we deal with the problems of how to address the real issues that come up from environmental and zoning restrictions? How do we get the things built in the first place without, in a sense, undermining other objectives such as a clean environment? I mean, it's, uh, it's a challenge, but we need to directly address it and get money into uh, and companies moving forward toward production here as well as elsewhere. And the longer term, I think, and I would like to turn to that as well, is there's the question of how do we get innovative ideas out of the lab, whether it be corporate lab or a lab at Berkeley or MIT or Stanford, uh, into actual fabrication. And part of the difficulty with that is it's increasingly expensive to, in fact, move things out of the lab into beta where they can then be picked up by various companies. And as a result, there have been specific suggestions that we create semiconductor commons where firms and researchers can share equipment so that it becomes operational expenses rather than capital costs. I mean, many of the capital costs of moving goods out of a lab would be $100 million and no researcher is going to do that. If we create those kind of semiconductor commons, there's an opportunity. And the opportunity is not only to encourage that kind of innovation, but to open those uh, both here and in Europe and in Asia to like-minded countries and the firms of like-minded countries setting down the terms on which firms and countries can participate, in a sense, redo some of the intellectual property and trade issues that are very hard to deal with in the WTO or impossible to deal with in the WTO at this point. You've been really careful in what I've read recently to emphasize that the U.S. can't do this alone, and you've warned against weaponizing trade restrictions, particularly with China. Can you say more about this? Well, I think very simply, we need to assure, uh, as I'm saying, a competitive, resilient, secure, sustainable system. We can do that with like-minded allies. Uh, We should do it under any circumstances. We don't have to make it 
an anti-China uh, event, it will be successful in dealing with many of the Chinese problems if we're successful in doing what we should in any case. That is, building uh, capacity here, uh, accelerating. We have to run even faster to stay ahead of the innovation objectives of the Chinese as well. Do I think there's a Chinese challenge? Absolutely. Do I think it's a serious issue? Absolutely. But I think building alliances with our like-minded allies is probably the most effective way of addressing that. John, you know, one of the things that I think we all know, the Trump administration took some actions against uh, China with regard to semiconductors. Uh, there was a Chinese company, which I will mispronounce, Fujian Hinghua, and it was making memory chips, DRAMs, dynamic random access memory chips. Uh, it was its factory had been funded by a, a government integrated circuit funds of 100% subsidized, and it was using a design technology that had been stolen from a Micron, uh, actually one of Micron's facilities or partnerships in Taiwan. So the administration, I thought, did a really smart thing. They, they basically cut off uh, their ability to get chip making equipment, particularly from applied materials. And, and the company, my understanding, is in stasis, if not dead, which, in my view, they deserve every, everything and more. That's not to say that every Chinese chip company is in that category, because I'm not saying they are. But clearly, when you have a category like that, where you're, 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 you're building something off of a stolen design, that, that, that's pretty, pretty uh, egregious to me. Where do we go with export controls on semiconductors? And, and clearly, the, the issue now, as we speak, is that the administration put in place export controls against Russia for semiconductors, for a lot of them. And what I thought was interesting is rather than, than use the domestic product rule, which could Im implicate other countries, uh, they actually got uh, over 30 countries, is my understanding, to co voluntarily cooperate. And so the Koreans are, are volunteering, the Japanese, the Taiwanese, uh, the, Chinese, the Chinese are not, to my knowledge, the Europeans are. That seems like a pretty interesting way that finally there's a there's a, a will uh, where countries are saying, yeah, we're going to cooperate so that we don't kind of cheat and gain advantage on on each other to stop a pretty egregious act of global aggression. Where are your thoughts on where this goes? Uh, is this a good thing? Good sign? Is it a one off? What's what, what's likely to happen? Well, let me I like where you're taking the conversation. Let me. Uh, remark that I will leave to you to s design the export controls. Obviously, some of it uh, will need to be done. I want to emphasize this problem of the need to run even faster. That is, uh, technology is going to be stolen. We should do everything we can to avoid it, but it's going to get stolen. Uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, there is a wonderful mill. Um, I'm forgetting its name. I have a sweatshirt from it. Samuel Slater. Slater's, that's right. And the sweatshirt I have from Slater's Mill says, innovation started here, leaving out the fact that he fled from England, stealing the technology from uh, his masters in uh, in England. So this isn't something... Subject, subject to the death penalty. Subject to the death penalty. But the point I'm saying is, is that uh, we should try and control that, but what we can control even more is running even faster and trying to, in fact, accelerate the pace of innovation, getting things out of our enormously innovative system. That's number one. Number two, and I agree with what you're saying about the allies joining together, is that requires, however, that we, in fact, recognize and understand and mutually support 
uh, the concerns other countries have about access to, uh, let's say, semiconductor technology. I mean, it's perfectly reasonable for the Europeans to want to have production in Europe. So how do we, in fact, uh, uh, find ways of, of acknowledging and addressing the concerns that those allies have so that on the issues that we consider important, they don't feel that we're just manipulating them. I think that's crucial, and it's going to be all the more crucial, not just in the semiconductor area, but in more delicate areas, ones where you and I might well disagree about how they should be handled, about platform technology, data, and the like. Uh, Others have different concerns. We want them to cooperate with us. We have to at least understand and acknowledge those, those concerns. But yes, building those alliances, I think, is crucial and I think is a, something that ITIF should definitely undertake to promote. Yeah, thank you, John. We've certainly been talking to other countries, most recently the Koreans and the Japanese and and the Brits, actually. And there does seem, and I don't want to say formal conversation, but I've had conversations with government officials in all three of those countries. And there does seem to be a real appetite now for putting something more concrete in place. Uh, there's a lot of rhetoric uh, now. There does seem to be an appetite. Like the, the, the EU is, gonna ha- is, is trying to pass this big semi, well, they're going to pass this semiconductor bill. They'll have funding, we'll have funding. So there does seem to be a lot of opportunity to put in place real partnerships along the lines you talked about. Well, I think that would be great. And I think that, in fact, the question is, how should that be done? To some extent, for example, the Lab to Fab project, which I was suggesting, is precisely to say to others, you know, why don't we all join together and move the digital era forward together? But as long as you're not going to steal technology and you're you're going to uh, honor intellectual property rules and, and trade rules. Uh, part of the question from an American side, and I think it's a question that we could usefully discuss, is should the, those kinds of activities and promotions come out of DARPA, the Defense Department, or out of the Commerce Department. Now, the Commerce Department isn't ideally orchestrated and organized uh, to do that, though the senior leadership uh, uh, knows a great deal about the in- about industry and is quite sophisticated without even after Gina Raimondo, but below Secretary Raimondo uh, as-, as well. But the real risk is if things are done through DARPA, that militarizes them and may make them more difficult to create collaborations. So the question is, how do we build that capacity uh, for action in the United States, um, in an agency? Maybe we set up a special agency to do that, but not one that is, in in fact, uh, militarized. It will be easier to work with the French or the Germans or the Koreans and Japanese in that case. Well, you're singing our tune. We've ITIF has proposed a, an independent agency, uh, as has our colleague Erica Fuchs at uh, Carnegie Mellon, and as we were talking about earlier, Eric Schmidt's group, the uh, AI uh, commission that he created and launched uh, or that he, he headed. They also proposed some kind of independent technology agency, which is probably worth another chat sometime, John. But at this point, we have to we have to unfortunately wrap up. So, I really enjoyed this conversation as always. Uh, And thank you for being with us. Thank you. And I look forward to a chat in Washington over a good meal and a glass of wine. That sounds excellent. And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. 
You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. And we have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes will drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in.